The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. The temperatures still haven't let up all month. With world records broken across the Northern Hemisphere, the predictions of climate scientists seem to be coming true. If that's the case, then impending doom on the scale of the day after tomorrow can't be far off. Then again, predictions for the apocalypse have been made throughout history, from scientists and theologians alike. Even Isaac Newton made one for the year 2060. What has caused our obsession with the apocalypse? On our panel to discuss this question is philosopher and author of Breakfast with Socrates, Robert Rowland Smith. Even if you do think it's barking mad to say that there is a spirit of the world or that there is a kind of Gaia principle of the earth, even if you think that is balmy, it's quite helpful to act as if there were a spirit of the world and that we could damage it in some way. Professor of Continental Philosophy at Anglia Ruskin University, Patricia McCormack. Are we of benefit to the world? Is the world a better place with us in it? Or is the world actually something that we use as our playground slash toilet? And director of The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, Sophie Fiennes. The problem is, is that we actually have a great deal of pleasure in thinking about the apocalypse. Danielle Sands hosts. Should we see impending apocalypse as very real and act with more urgency? Or is apocalypse a perennial human narrative that sells books, magazines, and news, and is mostly fantasy? So the first question I'd like to ask the speakers is, should we be worried about apocalypse? Robert, perhaps you could go first. Well, it'd be strange if we weren't worried about (laughs) it, I suppose, wouldn't it? Um, I I guess I make a distinction between two kinds of apocalypse because it's come to mean, you know, the end of the world, Armageddon, and so on, and I think that's probably what we'll mainly talk about. But I think it's worth just remembering what the word originally means, apocalypse, because the last book of the Bible is called, used to be called the Apocalypse, uh, sometimes called Revelations, and that's because the word apocalypse in Greek means a revealing or a lifting of the veil. And the idea there was that the day of the apocalypse, or the day of revelations, would be when the truth was finally revealed to everybody. And until that moment, we're living in a world of kind of benighted obscurity and ignorance and so on. And of course, in that sense, we should look forward to the apocalypse, because uh, you know, if there is the possibility of ultimate enlightenment coming to us at some point, then that's entirely to be recommended. And uh, in certain spiritual traditions, that's, of course, what we are, that's what we're going for. The apocalypse, the unveiling, the scales coming off our eyes so that we can see the truth. 
In terms of, I mean, the, the tradition of being scared about the end of the world is a very ancient one, and it, you know, it goes back, obviously, through the um, Christian Hebraic traditions and so on, and has come up at various points, particularly, for example, during times of revolution, the English Civil War, 17th century, there was great kind of chiliastic tension that this sort of signified the end of the world, particularly the execution of the monarch and so on. So it's not a new idea that there might be an end of the world. And, of course, we know about cults, that are based on the idea that the world will end, and then that's used to manipulate them and the behaviour of the, the, the kind of cult members as a way of sort of threatening them that something terrible is going to happen. One of the questions within what you're asking is, you know, what purpose does it serve? And of course, you know, Armageddon certainly focuses the mind. And um, the most tangible form in which we are focused at the moment is probably as a result, actually, of something quite humble, which is David Attenborough's Blue Planet series and the proliferation of plastics in the world and the terrible effect that we all know that they're having, particularly on marine life, but other life too. And of course, if we were to take debate, the debate in a purely ecological sense or environmental sense, we'd probably have lots of reasons to be pretty scared about the end of the world. But my response to that, maybe we, we can go into this a bit more later, because my background is in philosophy, is to think about the idea that the world itself and this is a bit woo-woo, but bear with me, that the world itself has a spirit. It's an idea that's very ancient. It was talked about by Hegel in the 18th century. He talked about the spirit of the world. It was revived most famously in the 20th century by Carl Jung, who, talk, who talked about the anima mundi. And even if you do think it's barking mad to say that there is a spirit of the world or that there is a kind of Gaia principle of the earth, even if you think that is balmy, it's quite helpful to act as if there were a spirit of the world and that we could damage it in some way. Because it would appear that we are damaging the spirit of the world, we are damaging the earth in some ways, and that that needs to be corrected. So you don't have to buy the theory of the anima mundi, but I think just for, in practical terms, it's worth thinking about the world as a kind of sensate or animate being whose soul we need to respect. Thank you. Patricia, should we be worried about apocalypse? I think we should welcome the apocalypse. I think um, I think humans have had their time over and over again and they keep fucking it up. And so I am in agreement in terms of this idea of the Gaia principle. I think that there are two sort of interpretations of the apocalypse that I understand that are manifested through human perceptions of life and meaning and even revelation in terms of this kind of persistent obsession with the Enlightenment or with Enlightenment as a concept. And the first is that the, the apocalypse is this persistent narrativization of everything that humans like to do. So everything has to be narrativized. So there's going to be the end of the world, but as we've all seen, every time we see the end of the world, the world doesn't end. So it's, it's a promise that never happens. Secondly, the hubris that is involved in us thinking we're going to be the last ones, that was also absurd because you're not so special that you're going to be in the final frontier. Um, the world is never going to end in your lifetime, so you should just give that away. From the other perspective, which is the ecological perspective, which is my main interest in the apocalypse, I think it is time we start to very, very seriously reflect on the value of the persistence of human exceptionalism and anthropocentric imposition on the world. And in that sense, I am actually someone who embraces what are quite extreme 
extinctionist and antinatalist ideas, which suggest that maybe humans need to really think, are we of benefit to the world? Is the world a better place with us in it? Or is the world actually something that we use as our playground slash toilet? In the many apocalypses that have occurred throughout different civilizations, there seems to be a persistent pattern of human exceptionalism and of anthropocentric arrogance that keeps showing itself. And I don't think that we're changing. I think we're just manifesting it in different but yet equally destructive ways. And so for me, I would be inclined to start thinking rather, uh, as you say, in terms of what what I would call, after Michelle Serre, what I would call uh, the biogea, which is this interconnectivity of all life because, and I don't mean that in a hippy-dippy way, I mean that in that we cause things and they affect the earth. And I think we should really start to think about the value that maybe the revelation is that the earth would be better off with no humans in it. And so for me, there's the horrible daily mail kind of apocalypse, you know, if women get abortions, the world will end. If gay people get married, the world will end, blah, blah, blah. As we've seen, the world's not going to end. So that's something that is used to sell newspapers, to sell narratives, to scare people into obedience. It's a biopolitical tool that uses fear to manifest aggression, and I think that's problematic. I think that we could learn to care for the world and thereby embrace a kind of understanding of the apocalypse that's about caring for the life that is, and trying to create new modes of living that are not consistent with how we currently manifest anthropocentric human exceptionalism. And in that sense, I'm ready for the apocalypse of the Anthropocene. Thank you. Lots to think about there. Um, (laughs) Sophie, over to you. Should we be worried about apocalypse? The problem is, is that we actually have a great deal of pleasure in thinking about the apocalypse. I think there is an attraction to this idea. It's this kind of chaos where change is possible. Yes, climate change is uh, a a very real and frightening prospect, but actually I think we can't throw ourselves out as the baby out with the bathwater and extract ourselves. I mean, I'm very influenced in thinking about the apocalypse that we're actually living in right now, the change that has happened in my lifetime in enormous ways. And I don't know if any of you know Franco Berardi's book called And, the phenomenology of the end, because I think this is a fantastic book, because it goes against the idea that there is this kind of, you know, mythic, amazing, biblical, what religions, you know, feed off. Um, But actually, uh, underneath it, there is this will to chaos, and chaos can be very creative. But, you know, we have to sort of resist the temptation to be drawn into that. Maybe we all will just be erased as as a race and there will just be insects and this is all going to happen. But in the meantime, we have to deal with what we are. One of the things that's tragic is that human beings are suffering hugely and that human suffering, not just suffering through poverty, but suffering through a kind of disconnection with with the earth and with ourselves is, is happening through the technological revolution, which has brought about a kind of apocalypse that I think is, you know, creating a consensus where power is is held through ignorance, you know, creates collective opinion that is not nuanced. Our political structures are falling apart. Democracy isn't delivering what we thought it would or what it should. So um, I think we are in an apocalypse as much in, in a real sense. And I, I, don't, I, I would like to hear what anyone else 
has to say about how we as humans, before we erase ourselves, which is kind of the easy way out, um, is to actually say what is the and of where we are today and how do we address ourselves as subjects and what we subject the world to um, and nature and, and, you know, Gaia. But where are we as humans in this apocalypse, it, the, outside of the myth? Thanks, Sophie. You've very conveniently preempted our first theme, um, which is why are we drawn to the apocalypse? And, and you mentioned this idea of being attracted to this kind of uh, chaos where it seems that creativity and change is possible. Um, Robert, perhaps you could respond to this question. Do you, would you see that as a reason why we seem to be drawn again and again to these kind of apocalyptic narratives? Yeah, and I like the phrase will to chaos as well. It sort of, it sort of has a kind of thrilling darkness to it. Um, I mean, I think about Freud in relation to this because Freud wrote a lot about the death instincts. But what Freud's talking about, so there's a famous paper by him called Beyond the Pleasure Principle where he's talking about the fact that although human beings fundamentally want to pursue pleasure, the actual ultimate aim of all pleasure, for Freud anyway, is peace. Because you, you are getting rid of the urge. You're getting rid of the desire. So desire wants the cancellation of desire. Because as long as you desire, as long as you want stuff, it's kind of unresting, it's importunate, it sort of bugs us in some way. So Freud says, actually, the deeper principle in us is this, you know, kind of death drive. But what he means by that is a return to a state of simplicity. Because his argument is that human beings essentially are over-evolved. We've got too complicated. We can't even fathom our own depths. You know, our own consciousness is sort of beyond our own grasp. And we're unhappy, we're striving, we've got you know, repressed feelings, we've got unconsciouses that we're not reconciled to. And that activates in us some, well, he calls it the kind of phylogenetic instinct, so it's, it's of the organism, really, that this, these multicellular bodies that we have, have at their heart a kind of deep craving to go back to a state of simplicity, where things can just be calm again. That's what Freud actually means by the death drive, it's not destruction, he's often thought to mean destruction, in fact other analysts and other people have talked about destruction. I think that's quite an interesting idea. So, you know, if there is a way forward in this, do, can we distinguish between destruction and simplicity? You know, is there a way of kind of returning to a sort of a simpler state that is not a destructive state? So it's almost the opposite of a will to chaos, actually. It's a sort of will to order, but order of a more primary kind. You know, not to mention other kind of more ordinary death instincts that we see in certain people, certain individuals, which are pathological, the desire to destroy. Fortunately, that seems restricted to a kind of psychopathic minority. The trouble is when those psychopaths take on positions of power, and uh, I'll let you infer what I might be talking about there. Patricia? Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting, and actually I... It, 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 it does remind me that, you know, we, we are always talking about these two apocalypses because I think there is something incredibly attractive in the challenge, like this will to chaos is a challenge to activism that deconstructs the patterns that we keep repeating that narrativize both normal activism that doesn't seem to work because we're just doing the same thing over and over and, um, you know, it, we're not getting a change. Um, so we're sort of looking, and you know, Bifo's work on K 
uh, capito-semiotics as well is really, really interesting because he talks about this alienation from materiality. Buffo is the name of Franco Berardi who wrote the book that I'm referring to. And, um, yeah, he talks about our alienation from materiality, so from just real stuff, from actual, you know, simplicity, from things like pleasure because everything is so over-signified that in a way we're already living in the apocalypse of the real and we don't really know how to be intimate, we don't know how to be activist, we only know how to sort of follow these very empty signifiers and exchange values and we see the pursuit of happiness as pursuit of signs and of accumulation and of acceleration and maybe the apocalypse is the reinvention of material reality. Maybe it's attractive because it's visceral, it's physical, it's pleasurable and it's scary, but it's not fear that breeds aggression, it's fear that breeds chaotic contemplation. Is it a sign of human self-obsession, do you think, this preoccupation with the I think that people who are worried about the apocalypse are a little bit narcissistic, yeah, because I'm really fascinated by the idea that every generation thinks they're the last and most important generation. (laughs) I'm like, really? Um, But it's the same with things like identity politics. You know, there is the material activism that is needed to activate difference and change and revolution, and that's an apocalypse for the majority. You know, that's, that's an apocalypse for power, and that's a good apocalypse. Um, but then identity politics that is all about self-absorption and recognition and me, what about me, what about me, we should also have apocalypses of identity because we should be working in collective ways rather than in individualised ways, which are the techniques that capitalism wants us to foster because it makes us forget about what's important, which is this materiality. Thank you. So it seems clear to, to all three of you that we are preoccupied with these apocalyptic narratives and there are various reasons why they keep returning. Um, but do you think they're useful? Do you think they actually help us to do stuff? Um, or do you think they serve as kind of distractions from productive action? Sophie? I think that they can do both. I mean, it, it really depends on how much time we're willing to take. Because uh, I think that one of the problems, even the notion of the apocalypse, is immediately one of speed. And this problem about speed sort of takes away this simplicity of time. And um, one of the things which I really am fascinated by in Bifo Berardi's book is this notion of the erotic body or the body of the people and the physical body. And, you know, we know that we're in the truth of the speed of our bodies. And so I think there's the first thing is a reconciliation between how these forces of... I know it sounds like a corny cliche to say of late capitalism, but they sort of just are. I don't know how else to describe them. I'm reminded actually of a, of a, of a conversation I had with a Moroccan guy whose brother was leading people through the desert. And I met him in England and he said, you know, my brother Hassan, you know, it's always taking these people, they would come and they said, we're on holiday. We're on holiday. I said, what, what's holiday? What do you mean a holiday? What do you mean you've got a, what's a holiday? And he had no concept of holiday until he came to London. He said, you have everything here. You have everything, but you don't have time. You don't have time for the things you have here. And then I understood the concept of holiday. (laughs) (laughs) But can we think apocalypse without that kind of frenzy? Well, that's the question, whether we, you know, this is the question. I like what you said, apocalypse of the... Of the Anthropocene, because, I mean, like, for example, in in antinatalism, 
people are like, oh, no, but you can't. You, you want to kill all humans. But it's a very, very slow, careful, attentive, material, real, localised series of activities that will take time. It's not this sort of quick fix. And we've all encountered students or people who, like, they want the quick fix. They want, you know, even if they want to be activists, they want it now. They want the outcome to be now. Mm. And I, I think I think that this deceleration and this living imminently and living carefully and attentively is deeply antagonistic. Um, and the apocalypse is the thing that is, you know, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And that prevents us from living here and now and seeing what we can do. So, yeah. So it's a distracting narrative in some sense. It, it can be used... I mean, it's usually insects and stuff like that. It's always imposed as a distraction. Think about the apocalypse and then you don't have to think about now. It's just exactly why, you know, people who were raised Catholic like me think about when you're dead. You don't want to go there, you want to go there. Don't think about now, don't think about real people. But it's also ironic that... It's the, easily the sexiest book in the Bible and it's the coolest book in the Bible. So, you know, there's a whore, there's a monster. That, yeah. So it's, it's not unattractive even as a spectacle. It's all smoke and mirrors, like whistles and bells. So then you're not thinking about, you know, the homeless person you're walking past in the street or the animals being slaughtered or that kind of stuff because you're worried about that. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Uh, well, but do you think it can be a kind of motivation to fruitful action, or is it always a distraction? I don't know about action, but I think, it, I think the idea of apocalypse probably serves or satisfies two fantasies. And one is the one that you were just talking about, which is... a. Uh, a kind of fantasy of, what is a drama fantasy? A you know, fantasy of, uh, you know, whores, pale horses, uh, you know, vivid drama, you know, which is gripping and scintillating. It's like being in a, a real-life kind of Hollywood blockbuster. And I think it does satisfy that need at one level. It's, it has a kind of phantasmatic quality to it. So one of my pet phrases, if ever, if ever I'm in conversation with somebody and somebody uses the phrase, at the end of the day... I normally want to punch them. <laughs> and it's because it's a sort of way of saying, you know, we're going to tidy things up. There's a conclusion to all of this. We just have to get there, and this will be the kind of summary, and we can stop thinking about things ever again. And I think this idea of the end, the kind of fantasy about the end, is also a fantasy about the point at which we don't have to try too much, or we can just give up, or we can stop thinking. We or can that, rest. We can re the debate will be over. And, of course, I always want to say to people, you know, who say at the end of the day, and I say, well, you know, well, what about the day after then? You know, what's going to happen? You know, you know the, the thing still continues. So far, as you were saying, really, only ever has been fantasy. It's never been the world that hasn't, at least not for human beings, hasn't ended. So uh, to that extent, it's an endlessly deferred phantasm. Is there a tendency then for apocalypse narratives to focus on things which are not actually very likely to happen? 
rather than real threats that are, are actually facing us? Well, I don't know. I mean, if you go online, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories about you know what how the Earth might end, um, whether it's you know the Thetans descending and lifting us up in a cloud of smoke or a weird asteroid or what have you. But I, I mean. If the environmentalists are to be believed, the, you know, the, the threats to the planet really are super real. I'm not a scientist, but from what I can tell, you know, it's no laughing matter. But when we think about, I guess, um, environmental degradation, it, it's been such a slow process. It's, it's been not visible to us in lots of ways. Whereas we often think about uh, apocalypse, something immediate and very visible. Is there, is there something about apocalypse which distracts us from those processes which are happening less visibly or quietly or we don't always, we're not always attentive to? Well, yeah, and I think that's partly why the environmental movement has struggled so much yeah. because it hasn't had that kind of visceral call to action, you know, until there are certain moments that happen like the Blue Planet moment, but generally speaking, it just seems like a really achingly long process to do all the things we need to do in order to reverse it. So in a certain sense, that movement insofar as a movement it kind of needs to recruit a bit more apocalyptic thinking to scare the shit out of us you know because um, it would galvanize behavior so it can be useful in that sense in that sense it can yeah Sophie? yeah I'm, I'm not sure um you know i feel like when we get caught into that i mean i think that we need to put pressure on 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 the, the systems of power to make the changes like you know some governments do make you know in terms of you know, we ha we ha there has to be a, a pressure on power. I mean, activism that acts alone can do only so much. But, you know, when governments say, OK, like, you know, there are no plastic bags in Holland. They don't sell them in the shops. That's changed. You know, that was a law. But I I'm wary of the apocalypse. I think it's too exciting to do to achieve those more methodical Processes. I, I, in that sense, so I think it is a distraction. I think we should accept that we find it exciting and place it in this area of culture that excites us, that's somehow related to our libido, to our own death, that, you know, apocalypse stands for some kind of cancelling of life. And, you know, I always remember as a child being fascinated by this story of Chicken Lickin', that was a ladybird and chicken licking went along and said to everyone, the sky is going to fall on our head and told everyone in the, in the farmyard the sky was... And even this narrative of it even came up in the ladybird book, you know, and I always sort of saw it kept re-emerging. So it must be a narrative myth for us that's part of our collective unconscious, part of our culture. But I think we should sort of separate it from this real you know, the exploitation of um, resources and the pursuit of wealth and, you know, is, is creating devastation. You know, we should separate it. It's a distraction from that sense. We should own our excitement in it. I mean, I just make a small diverging point that as a filmmaker, you know, I remember very vividly when I was looking at a rough cut of a film and um, I was sitting with two actually Austrian uh, film commissioners. <clears throat> Every single cut, they would stop and pedantically question it. And then suddenly there were these sequences that had violence in them, and there was silence. You know, they just were having such a good time, they had lost all critical faculty. <laughs> and I, I understood then something about what violence and this kind of, as I say, this, the, the apocalypse in this sense is speaking to a different part of our psyche. So it's a kind of effective response that it um, triggers rather than a kind of... It triggers pleasure. I mean, the idea of it is 
is that's why it's you know like the like you know the apocalypse you know the, the yeah. revelations book of revelations or even i think you know probably in a in a uh, in a, a sense in islam there's a sort of excitement about the sort of end times there you know it's it's uh, you know speaking to um to us as humans in a way that's probably producing adrenaline um and you know there's a huge relationship to adrenaline and apocalypse i think it's you know it's a delicious sense. distraction yes delicious distraction well, it's not just a distraction. I mean, as we talk now, you know, the possibility of uh, some sort of nuclear uh, incident happening has come up the agenda again, for, you know, in a way that it hasn't for a long time with what's happening between North Korea and the West, you know, which seems so fragile at the moment. One minute, the possibility of the, a summit is on the agenda. The next, next minute, it's not. The rhetoric's been ramped up. Nuclear capability on the North Korean part of the peninsula seems to be, you know, at a state where it could be deployed over long distances, let alone all the other nuclear weapons in the world. So, I mean, it's not just a distraction. It's not just a fancy. There's Except a very that real... when you read what Donald Trump says about how big my button is and this kind of thing, you know, I mean, you do. It, it, it's like there is. I mean, as a woman, I, I really want men to explain something to me here. You know, men are always happy to explain stuff to women. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one, this one. This one, you know, in terms of like, you know, this, this, I, I look at it as, a, you know, these two men like posturing like towards each other. And, you know, of course, we know that underneath it all, there's other stuff about power going on, that they're using apocalypse to kind of thrill and attract and, dis and, and uh, each other in a very frightening game, of course. And it's the derealization, like they literally are talking about buttons that have become metaphors for their dicks, but actually the buttons can destroy the world. And so they don't, they don't, connect, they don't connect the signifier with the actual material reality. And that's really, you know, that's really the problem, that you don't connect this plastic bag you have with the affect it produces in a material reality. You're just operating with these different little, you know, signs... I agree with that, but there's all, that also suggests it's entirely within the control of certain people whether there will be a nuclear incident or not. And of course, the worst nuclear incident in the world is known as the Chernobyl, which was an accident. So, I mean, that's the, you know, it's, it's when it goes beyond human agency that I think true apocalypse takes place because we've been talking about, you've been talking about the Anthropocene and the kind of human agency behind it. But, you know, what if it were an accident that led to the end of the world. You know, I think that's the thing which is much more kind of... And weirdly, fighting. Chernobyl has become this amazing utopia for, like, wolves and birds. So... I wonder what the end of that sentence was going to be. No, that's it. Just, that's it. I mean... So it was all right then? Yeah. Moving smoothly on to our final theme, um, what, what do we do? So, so, Robert, you're saying we are at this moment where there, there are visible threats to our future. Um, what should we do? Well, who's the we in that case? I mean, uh, we, you know, panellists at How the Light Gets In, you know, we have, you know, Lots certain of things power, we can obviously. do. You know, we can campaign, we can say things, we can publish articles, you know, we can express the fear. For me, as I say, it's that thing, it's much more about nuclear accident than nuclear agency that is the, the thing. And, you know, what do we, you know, tangibly do about that? Well, we increase... I mean, there, you know, there is a current issue with Sellafield at the moment in the northwest of this country about where to store the nuclear waste because it, you know, there's, it can only be stored in its current facility for so long. 
other parts of the world don't want to accept it, so the nuclear waste has to be put somewhere. And of course, every time you move nuclear waste, you increase the risk of something dreadful happening. So, you know, if we don't want the world to end, we, there are very simple things, no, not simple, but there are direct things that have to be done around nuclear policy, for example. Thank you. Patricia, how should we respond to threats to our future? Should I think we, embrace I think we should embrace them. I think we should stop voting in white dude bros. I think we should um, start making people more accountable. I think we should also accept that stuff is hard and it's not a simple narrative that even activism involves facing, you know, what, what Lutard would call the incompossible, which is it appears impossible, but it's nonetheless needed. We, we, we can all be activists in different ways and we can all actually, we can, you know, publish and things like that. But ideas do create material affects that are physically real. And so I think we should, um, look, I, I say let's embrace the apocalypse, let's embrace the end of the Anthropocene, but I know that I am quite a minority in that opinion. <laughs> um, I'm just going to have to accept for now that, you know, maybe one day I'll become an evil genius and I can press the button, I don't know. But say we did uh, put to one side our kind of human obsession with human survival, what would we do? Do you think we'd have more time to do other things? What, what would we do? How would we spend our time better? <sighs> That's a big question, Danielle. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I'm not an artist. Maybe, Sophie, you could answer that because you're a filmmaker, you're an artist, you... Well, <laughs> you know, we all know that our time here is finite. And so you, you really have to, you know, be, you know, not dodge that issue. Recognize the extraordinary privilege it is. And we here are all extremely privileged. So I feel like, um, you know, it's important to actually, you know, uh, to, to, to uh, enjoy who we are, where we are. And, you know, I, I, and as an artist, as a filmmaker, you know, I, I make documents. Um, I don't make commentaries. I like to make documents, and it's a kind of gesture against this kind of mortal truth. I'm trying to, actually, one of the reasons why I wanted to be on this panel is because I'm trying to complete my third film with Slavoj Žižek. And so trying to kind of look at all these ideas, look at, these, look at this question that everyone's trying to understand about what I'm calling not the apocalypse, but this question of and, and where are we? Because the world has just changed in enormous ways, and it is frightening what's possible in human error. You know, human error is a real factor in all of this, and stupidity, um, you know. And, and so I think we should, yeah, all go and read Biffo Birardi's book, And, Phenomenology of the End. That's a good starting point, except that Paul Biffo is Italian, so every time he speaks about and, it sounds like end. I think care is another thing we can start thinking about because care is a way to act that doesn't predict the future, therefore doesn't predict an apocalypse that's about to happen, but it is attentive to the real possibility of accidents. And I know that quite a lot of, um, of the better post-human feminist philosophers are dealing with issues of care. How do we care and how do we prepare ourselves to get ready for care when we don't know what's going to happen next? So that, that and is also quite important in a lot of feminist circles at the moment as well, this what next. Not what next as in, you know, the end, but what next as in what, what is my call to duty in terms of my next activist 
attention and care. That sounds like a shift of scale as well from the macro to the micro. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's what uh, Rosie Brodotti would call globalization. So it's global and local. And it's what you can do. Not everyone can do everything, but people take on that that sense that if I can't do everything, I won't do anything. So, you know, this also breeds a lot of atrophy that's quite dangerous. The idea of the apocalypse will breed atrophy. And I think that, yeah, slow down and care. And if you can do, because everyone can in different ways, in unique ways and in local and global ways. And I think also respecting people. I mean, you know, just, you know, seeing people who work in care services or people who are teachers and people in working in prisons and all of these people who are taking enormous amounts of care. And I'm really astonished having a child in primary school, in a state primary school in London, how amazing the teachers are. You know, it's just completely astonishing. Care is undervalued. It's and it, really, it's really undervalued. I mean, in fact, funnily enough, like, like mother, Mothering now has a prize called Childcare. And, you know, before it didn't, it was just done for free. But by mothers, but you know that's like you know actually r really taking on board what that commitment means, and I think commitment commitment is also part of care. Thank you all for coming, and ask you to join uh, me in thanking our speakers. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Please let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag Philosophy for Our Times.